And so I think we've made progress. We'll continue to make progress. But right now, the fact that those federal dollars are being spent without sufficient understanding of the true on-the-ground service, I think is indicator enough that we need to continue to concentrate on this. Welcome to a special episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast and our new podcast series, Why NC Broadband Matters. I'm Lisa Gonzalez with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in Minneapolis, Minnesota. NC Broadband Matters is a North Carolina nonprofit. Their mission is to attract, support, and champion the universal availability of affordable, reliable, high-capacity internet access, which is necessary for thriving local communities, local businesses, and a local workforce to enable them to compete in the global economy. The group has created the North Carolina chapter of CLIC, the Coalition for Local Internet Choice. We are collaborating with NC Broadband Matters to present this series that touches on issues that, while certainly affect folks in North Carolina, also impact people in other states. Our third episode is titled, Broadband Mapping Means Money, Understanding How Data Drives Decisions. You've heard from us and from other organizations about the problem with mapping data. Most grants and loans established to connect unserved and underserved communities are based on FCC data that overstates coverage. Today's guests are working to change that. First, Christopher speaks with Brian Rathbone, co-founder of Broadband Catalysts. They get deeper into the problem as it relates to topology and federal mapping. Then Christopher talks with Jeff Searle from the North Carolina Department of Information Technology, where the state is working to improve the data they use to determine where folks need better internet access. Now here's Christopher with Brian and Jeff to talk about mapping. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and this is episode three in the bonus edition of Why North Carolina Broadband Matters series. We're exploring better broadband internet access throughout North Carolina, and today we're talking about mapping. Our first guest is Brian Rathbone, the co-founder of Broadband Catalyst. Welcome to the show, Brian. Well, hello, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here, and hello to everybody out there listening. Broadband Catalyst, it sounds like something I'm in favor of. Uh, What do you do? We're a broadband planning consultancy. Um, In general, we work with um, towns and cities and boroughs. A lot of times we do it at the behest of federal agencies like the EPA, USDA, and the Appalachian Regional Commission. And we help communities um, plan for their broadband future. And in many cases, what we do is go into rural communities where um, availability is low and help those communities understand how to use their existing assets to lower the cost of deploying broadband in their um, communities. And um, from doing that, they can attract providers who uh, normally wouldn't be able to make a business case if they had to build all their own towers and do all those sorts of things. The folks that work with Broadband Catalyst all at one point um, worked with nonprofits or with the Department of Commerce in North Carolina uh, to do broadband planning. And after we all returned to the private sector, Broadband Catalyst has been a good home for our continued efforts in broadband planning. So we're going to be talking about mapping efforts uh, around broadband in this episode. We're going to talk with you a lot about federal mapping. But I'm curious about the work that you do and the way you just described it before we start that other stuff. Do communities in rural areas or any of the communities that you work with, do they often have a sense of what relevant assets they have and what they are? Some do and some don't. It it, it really ranges widely. Um, and the understanding of what those assets can be used for also ranges widely. And a lot of times the ownership of those assets is is sprinkled about throughout the community, and it's not viewed as a whole. Um, to give you an example, the community that I live in, in Rutherford County, North Carolina, uh, the water towers are owned by the Broad River Water Authority. And they partnered with a nonprofit who applied for an Appalachian Regional Commission grant to put up fixed wireless on those uh, water towers. Now, there's also um, county assets and city assets that are used in that um, that really lowered the cost uh, by using existing buildings that already had fiber in them uh, and using that to provide the access up to the water tower. Uh, and, you know, all those structures were already there. That was a significant savings to our community, but it really took 
some assistance in helping folks understand which pieces of infrastructure were actually relevant to broadband and what that value was and how they could use it to partner with uh, potential providers who may not know they could get access to it. That's interesting. I just, I'm, I'm always interested in creative approaches to solving these problems. So I'm guessing that's Monday through Friday for you. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about federal mapping. And when you're describing your critique of federal mapping, I, I think that listeners are really going to enjoy the rigor with which you are going to present it in terms of looking at different types of technology and how the mapping uh, you know, uniquely may uh, result in, in better or worse results uh, based on each technology. Um, but let's just start with a general picture of, of what's wrong with the federal broadband mapping. Well, let me tell you a little bit about where I started with broadband mapping and how that related to uh, the federal map. Originally, I was hired by the ENC Authority, uh, which was the North Carolina Broadband Initiative um, back in 2010. And I had 31 counties in western North Carolina that I was helping to do broadband planning. And part of that effort was to work with, at the time, the NTIA to produce some of the first broadband maps um, at that level of granularity to get down at least to the census block. And so as I was going out and working with these communities, I was looking at these maps and trying to understand the landscape I was going into. And initially, in a couple of the counties, we didn't have any of the data. Uh, they hadn't reported anything yet. And so I was like walking into a black hole. I didn't know <laughs> anything. And it made it very difficult for me to be useful. And the more data I got, the more I found certain pockets and certain things that I could analyze from that data and that it was really useful. The problem I saw was even back when we were doing data collection for NTIA, most of the data was collected at the census block level. We did collect some data at the address level, but it was problematic in and of itself. And a lot of it, we ended up rolling up to the census block level to have a, a homogenous data set to look at, you know, lowest, kind of, lowest common denominator sort of thing. And so when the FCC took over that responsibility from NTIA in 2014, I believe it was, um, there was a different data set employed. Now we're using the FCC's Form 477 data that is submitted uh, to the FCC by providers that follows a certain number of rules that basically uh, the providers are supposed to indicate census blocks where their technologies are available that they could deploy within a reasonable amount of time. I think it's 10 to 12 days or so. And so that's fine as long as everybody in that census block has service, but that's almost never the case. When you look at the FCC information in general, if a single household has been indicated to have access to a technology from a provider, then the entire census block is lit as served. And that dramatically overstates uh, the coverage. Everybody else in that census block may be unserved, but because there's that one by our mapping standpoint, that says it's served. And the reason that's so critical to all of our communities out there is those maps are used to determine eligibility for federal and other funding. And so if you're looking at a census block and you're saying, oh, that census block already has DSL and cable, we can't provide federal funding to overbuild those networks. Therefore, that census block is not eligible for funding. That is really a difficult situation if only a small percentage of that census block really has service. Or if you're just one of the households out there that, hey, you know, what about me? You know, my neighbors have service and I don't. That's where the whole situation becomes very difficult. And since it's allocating billions of dollars, it really is critical for us to find as many ways to evaluate this as possible so that we can deal with the weaknesses in whatever data sets we're using. Now, one of the things that people sometimes say is a criticism is that this data is all self-reported. And I think that sounds good, but um, I just wanted to, to do a quick check-in with you on this because it strikes me that's the only kind of data that we're going to get because no one else knows uh, where this service is available. And so I think ultimately our problem is not that it's self-reported in the critique of some folks, but rather that it is done at this level that is not useful, but then also that it's not rigorously checked, right? Right, because even if we switch to, let's just say tomorrow the FCC says you have to give us address level data and we have to determine whether it's subscriber level data. 
demand level data or availability level data because subscriber level data is the people who pay for it have it now. Demand data is people who want it and don't have it. And then there's the other bucket of folks who basically, you know, don't have access to it, but, you know, you aren't able to serve. Um, so it gets really difficult to figure out exactly where folks fit in that from a provider standpoint. And you write that it's difficult to then go and ground truth that data. Only some of this infrastructure can be uh, validated by sending someone in and looking at the infrastructure. You can generally see the cable, uh, for example, but sometimes that's buried as well. You can usually see markers indicating it, but it's very difficult to actually crack open uh, the case and look to say, well, how many DSL ports <laughs> are available for this neighborhood? Uh, or is that fiber that goes by my house, is there anywhere near here that you can get access to it? Because they generally just don't cut into fiber. So those types of things get really difficult. And that's where it comes down to technology by technology, there are challenges in mapping. Let's dive right in. Which technology would you like to start with? I would like to start with DSL because it's the one the mo that people are most familiar with. Yeah, also the most frustrated with. Yes, yes. And it, it uses our existing copper technology. That copper has been in the ground in many instances for 40, 50 years, and the quality of it is questionable. And it's, it's an older technology that many of us, you know, lament, although I have a DSL circuit at my house and I use it all the time. So, you know, it, it's, it's a critical part of our infrastructure, but its limitations are many and they're, they're fairly well known, but they're a little hard to articulate. The quality of DSL is usually determined by how much copper is between you and the node. So if you live in a fairly new development and the telephone company has a big box by the entrance to your development, the amount of copper going between that box and your house is fairly short. And because of that, you can get really good DSL service because it's distance sensitive. And, and by really good, I suspect you're, you're thinking about like 45, 50 megabits down, 10, 20 up, sort of in that neighborhood, right? Yeah, and that technology would qualify as what we call VDSL or very high-speed DSL. Um, anything above you know, 10 down, 1 up, you're getting into that VDSL, and the range on that is much shorter. You, don't, you can't have much copper in that. So if you look at something like AT&T's Uverse product, that is fiber to your neighborhood and then copper from the node to your house. But if you live more than a thousand feet or so from that node, it's very unlikely that Uverse um, will be available to you without some other infrastructure being put into place to get over that distance limitation. Right. When you get at over 3,000 feet, then six megabit DSL becomes a problem. So the farther you go, the worse it gets. Right. And I'm going to stop interrupting you all the time. He said, probably not meaning it. Um, and, but I wanted to <laughs> note one other thing, which was that um, you don't always know how far you are because the, the copper doesn't run in a direct line from you to the, to the box. And so I just want to clarify that also for people who uh, might be mentally drawing the line. The line actually, I mean, it could go all the way around the neighborhood and back to you. And so you might be um, just 500 feet away from the box, but have 1500 feet of copper uh, between you and it. So it's, uh, this is one of the challenges. Indeed. And if you need to know how far away you are, you can call your phone company and ask them the distance of your local loop. Um, they should be able to tell you that, but it is extremely frustrating for folks who had existing copper that came from three miles away and they have a development behind them who have a node that they're very short. So it can be just, you can see the people who have broadband, but you can't have it. Right. It's a lot to do with historical. How did they build it back in the days that that community was constructed? The older the community, the more the problems. So let's go back to where we were when, before I asked you what you meant by the higher speed DSL. Oh, no problem. The other thing about DSL is the fact that DSL deployments generally have capacity issues in that most of them use what are called DSLAMs or DSL access modules, and they'll have 24 ports on them in general might cost $50,000 or so to put a new one of those in and the service to feed it. So if you've got 26 homes in a neighborhood and they all want DSL, only 24 of them are going to get it. And there'll be two of them on a waiting list. And the reason is those two subscribers aren't going to make up the amount of money it takes to put that second DSLAM in. You know, when I first bought my house, DSL wasn't available to me because the DSLAM was full. But eventually one of my neighbors moved and turned off their service and I jumped on 
And now whoever bought that house, that poor fellow, can't get service. And you can't see that in the map. And that's one of the problems I have with, with I don't know how to map DSL well because you can't really see that. Uh, and the distance of your local loops and all those things contribute. So DSL has its list of mapping issues. I'll just throw in that uh, in when the FCC was taking comments about how to do mapping better with this new proposal, which which will deal with some of the critique that you're offering, um, some of us did incl include that we needed to have that data on whether or not a technology could provide service to 100% of the homes if 100% were, were interested. And I think that may get at that. So it may not show up on the map, but this is something that the FCC should be tracking. Validation of that will be extremely difficult. That's one of the problems that, that we've had is that there will be some questions with regards to the accuracy of that data um, without having some ability to go and verify it, um, spot check it, do those sorts of things. But I agree with the point um, that you're making, and it would be an improvement to have that data, even if there are some questions as to its full accuracy. So let's talk about cable. What's happening with cable? So cable is an, inter an interesting industry where they tend to be limited by the number of homes per linear road mile where their infrastructure is either on the telephone pole or in the ground. So if you live in an area where there's fewer than 15 homes, if you drive a mile on the road and you pass fewer than 15 homes, chances are you're not in the cable industry's business model. So most of it's going to fall within that more populated area where you drive past 100 homes per mile, that's where the cable industry is going to flourish. But there are some things about the cable infrastructure that are difficult to map as well, such as which side of the road is the infrastructure on? And this is something I saw um, working with the, the EPA and USDA's uh, and Appalachian Regional Commission's Cool and Connected program, where we went to 18 different cities, towns, and boroughs. Many of them, I would go at least on one or two streets, and I would see one side of the street with cable infrastructure, and all the houses on the other side of the street had satellite dishes. <laughs> chances are all the ones on the right had really bad DSL, and all the ones on the left with the cable infrastructure had 100 megabit or better internet. And interestingly enough, there was also a financial divide. You could see the difference between the affluence of the neighborhood that had the service and that that didn't. Those who don't have as much money don't tend to get it. And to cross the street, if one person on the other side of the street said, hey, I want cable and I'm willing to pay for it, it can cost them upwards of $10,000 to get that infrastructure across the street and connected to them. So a lot of times once it happens, when the cable company comes in and they're deploying, if they deploy on one side of the street, the odds of them deploying on the other side of the street are very low unless almost everybody on that side of the street decides they're going to subscribe. It's cheaper to do it up front. So if you get missed when they deploy it, it's harder to get them to come back and do it later. It's expensive. And I saw that a great deal. And the other thing that I saw is in rural areas, if let's say you pass 15 homes per mile, but most of those homes are 1,000 feet from the road. Rural areas, farming areas, places where out in the mountains where folks are specifically going there to not be right on the road, there's an, a really high cost. I think 250 feet is the usual cutoff that most providers have quoted to me uh, to say, if you're more than 250 feet from the road, I have to charge you at least $50 a foot to connect to you. For me, I'm 700 feet off the road. There's fiber at the end of my driveway. I'm looking at a $3,000 bill to trench and get it up here, and that cost is prohibitive and prevents a lot of people from getting service. So that really kind of covers some of the difficulties in the cable area. Um, some of the other things apply uh, as far as the granularity of census block, but I really think the side of the road and how far you live off the road, those are indicators that I don't know how you account for those things in the mapping at the census block level at the very least. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about fixed wireless. What's uh, what's happening there? Uh, you can hear the can of worms opening. <laughs> fixed wireless is one of the most difficult things to map. 
Let me tell you, um, in, in Kansas, they, they did actually require people to put in um, the polygons showing where they could have ser- service. And it was remarkable, but um, the fixed wireless shows up in a perfect sphere around antenna sites. Um, and Isn't so that amazing? It actually, I think the mapping worked quite well. <laughs> and, and to be honest with you, that I work with a lot of fixed wireless providers on their mapping, usually for things like grant applications. We say, if I put a tower here, who am I going to serve? And it's such a difficult question to answer with any level of accuracy. And it depends on what technology you're going to use. So I'm going to list off four different fixed wireless technologies just so we kind of know what we're looking at in the, in the spectrum of things. One is high-frequency unlicensed fixed wireless, like 5.8 gigahertz service that does not go through trees very well at all. The second is lower frequency, um, but light licensed free, but first come first serve type of frequencies, like the um, the 3.65 CBRS service. And then you start getting into things like licensed wireless, such as what AT&T and other big providers have paid billions of dollars for access to their frequencies, their type of wireless. Um, I guess I only looked at three there. I kind of lumped a couple together. But essentially, those are the the types of service. And with fixed wireless, that is line of sight only. Trees between the home and the transmitter will block service. That's the situation I was in when I bought my house. There's 5.8 gigahertz service available five miles from me, but the trees on my neighbor's property blocked it. And then when my neighbor clear cut his property, I got 20 megabit service. So hooray for the fact that he cut down those trees, uh, I guess. Uh, I got internet out of it. That was a good right. sign. You got, you got a few years of internet until they grow back. <laughs> exactly. But it's a really good indicator that, yeah, you can go a long distance. I know, you know folks are 20, 25 miles from that transmission site. They get service off of it. But if there's a sheet of paper in the way, you've got a problem. In areas where there's a lot of foliage, mapping line of site based service is questionable at best. So then you look at, well, what about near line of sight service? What about the stuff that's meant to go through trees? And that's usually when you're talking about a a two and a half to five mile buffer ring around the tower that there's a decent chance you're going to have enough signal punched through the trees that you can still provide service um, that's going to be, you know, 25 down, three up at least, aiming for 25 down, three up. If there's a mountain in the way, if there's a building in the way, um, there's lots of things that can block this signal that can cause it to not serve everybody in the community. That's the number one thing about fixed wireless for me is there's going to be people who can't get it for whatever reason. Even with AT&T's fixed wireless, I was very disappointed in them recently because I get AT&T LTE service here over, I believe it's uh, somewhere in the 750 megahertz range. And that works through trees over 15 miles. But then they started serving my area with their fixed wireless uh, service. And when they came out to install it, the installer said, well, I'll get up on your roof and see if I can see any towers. At which point I just had to laugh and cry at the same time because I knew we couldn't. Uh, (laughs) If you can't go through trees, I'm not getting it. Mm -hmm. Unless you happen to be on that one mountaintop five miles away and they're not. So even the folks that are playing in in the licensed realm, a lot of times they're using these higher frequencies to do the fixed wireless and they still can't go through trees. So when you have to take foliage into consideration, which you pretty much have to, in my opinion, no matter what, and topography, uh, you know, if you're in the flatlands, it's easier. But if you're in the mountains, sometimes that's an advantage by having peaks, and sometimes it's a huge disadvantage because communities and valleys are very hard to serve. So let's move to fiber to the home. What's what's the the mapping uh, analysis here? I think with fiber to the home, it's better, although that 250 foot off the road limitation holds. You know, to pull fiber, there's a cost per foot. And the same with the cable industry. They kind of build usually 250 feet into their cost model. So that's just their normal expense. But when you're beyond that, it's usually $50 or more a foot, depending on what they have to dig through to get to you. It can go up from there. Um, But that's probably the biggest challenge on mapping fiber to the to the premise you know if you're doing it at a granularity that's the census block you're still going to have that issue that there's going to be homes that don't make the business case that are going to get left out in your mapping because they're 
sitting too far from the fiber or for whatever reason, it costs too much to get to them. In some cases, it's things like they're on the wrong side of the Blue Ridge Parkway. They're on the wrong side of that uh, wildlife reserve. Um, those are types of things that I've seen throw a monkey wrench into fiber deployment. Well, and I'm guessing that even if you have a maximally um, defensible fiber company that is um, saying, you know what, we have an unlimited checkbook, we will build fiber to everyone, um, they probably don't even know if the house is within 250 feet of the road or not, right? I mean, this is an unknown as opposed to just something that's inconvenient. It's true. But I can say we can look back a little bit at what was done um, back in from 2010 with the American um, Reinvestment and Recovery Act. We used uh, uh, several counties in North Carolina got roughly $20 million to provide countywide service. And their goal was 97% because the last 3% doubled the cost of the network. Mm -hmm. And that's really difficult math to get past. Uh, so you're always going to end up, you know, with with some subsection of the community underserved. And my feeling on it is one of the best remedies to this, or at least supplementary data sets that can give us a better view of this, is citizen source data. And that comes in two flavors right now that I'm using. Um, one is speed test data, generally gathered by third parties. I'm not hosting my own speed test at this point, but. MLab has taken their data they gathered and made it available in the Google Cloud. It's just two or three years out of date. That's its number one flaw. Citizen source data is the data that I am collecting directly myself and that others um, collect directly themselves through surveys and uh, essentially allowing the citizens to have a voice. There's been folks who said, hey, you're going to have accuracy issues asking people about their internet, and they are correct. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, it is better than having no data. So we do our best to kind of bridge the divide of, I have to ask somebody if they have internet over the internet. That part's difficult. We have to work with that. Uh, and how do I ask somebody who might not understand what their internet is or what they have um, to respond with the information I need to accurately determine the level of service they either do or don't have? We have found that in general, when you combine the FCC's flawed data set with our flawed data set and any other available and, and probably also somewhat flawed data set, put them together, we end up with a much better view. And we can use those things to offset them. We can find weakness in the existing infrastructure. And for me, if you can have folks report their location, and we know what census block they're in, and we know how many homes were in the census block as of the last census, then we can say, yes, this census block is shown to have DSL, cable, fixed wireless, and fiber. However, 20% of the households in the census block have reported themselves as underserved. At the very least, we can consider that census block underserved and contested, and it's worth looking at does that census block warrant investment, even if it's limited in scope, maybe limited in area to an unserved area? That's where I think citizen source data really has a big value point. The other place that has a big value point is when you're applying for grants, and I'm going to take USDA's Reconnect program as an example, the more information you have about the number of farms, the number of students, the number of businesses that your infrastructure would serve, the stronger your grant application is. And a lot of this type of information can be gathered through a properly developed survey instrument that asks the right questions. What is your budget? Um, are you a farm that makes more than $1,000 a year? By collecting that data and mapping it, we can produce a data set that helps us get a more thorough understanding, even though none of our data sets are perfect. One of the things that I, I wrestle with as you're describing it, I mean, what you're, what you're doing is, is really good and powerful. Do you think if we just had access to, you know, if, if for instance, CenturyLink and AT&T had to make available where their fiber runs are, where their copper runs are, in some kind of meaningful way that was useful, that you could specify, 
that we could dispense with a lot of this? Or do you think there's just no way around the fact that this is messy and we need to be creative? I don't think there's any way around the fact that it's messy. I think we're going to have to be creative. We're going to have to think about each technology a little bit differently. Fixed wireless being a great example of where we just need to rethink how we're doing that. You know, let's take, for example, if you said, what if the the incumbent providers told us where all their infrastructure was? This is something I've seen reproduced at the third party level where consultants will go into a county and do an infrastructure survey where they drive and they look where all the fiber is. You can tell what it is on the pole. Mm -hmm. You can tell who owns what's in the ground. You can drive the infrastructure and you can get an idea. But I always struggle with the fact of, okay, you told me that AT&T has fiber here. How many of those strands are in use? And so if we were to ask about infrastructure, I also have to ask about which of that infrastructure is lit, which is dark, which is maybe available for lease. And to be honest with you, those questions generally are viewed as intellectual property and trade secrets. And so it's almost like if you can't get all of the stuff, it's not as useful because mm-hmm. I can find, I know there's fiber there, but I couldn't tell you necessarily that you could do anything with it. Right. And I, I think they have a history of being overly broad in claiming that things are intellectual property. But I, I think I agree with what you're saying in that um, we we could agree that that's at a certain level of detail, there is a true competitive um, desire to keep things secret. I, I think I draw the line differently, but I think that there there is a line and, and, and what you're saying resonates with me that ultimately to have good maps we can't just pretend that simply you know getting all the information that that in a perfect world would be public that would not be enough in and of itself i agree with that and you know the truth of the matter is you know um we would all love to see this problem solved uh i think the providers would like to see this problem solved and do it in a way that they can remain competitive and they can do the things that we do. Because that's one of the things that I've learned through my time is that demonizing the providers does nothing for anyone. They have a very difficult job and they have difficult margins to make. And just the burden of asking them to provide some of this information digs into their bottom line. So I do feel for them and I understand that it's difficult and and I wanna find a way to work with them and help them as well. So you're asking this question of how do we do something we don't really know how to do well, that the responsibility largely falls on the private sector who's self-reporting or the community. And with the community, you know, with the maps I could show you of the data I've collected, it's really clear that the problem is awareness. We go to communities and we work there and that's where we end up with data. Everywhere Mm -hmm. else we have nothing because I don't have an effective way to communicate, even when I go into a community, the first thing I say is, can we survey through the schools? Can we survey through the hospital? Can we survey through the power company? Because I don't have a way to get to the citizens to allow them the opportunity to know they can make their voice heard. As soon as you give them the opportunity, they will come out in droves. Uh, and you know, sometimes you even just have to go out and find them in these remote communities. But It's really going to be a challenge. I think you're going to have to come at it from provider source data, citizen source data, speed test data, all the different ones, and then map them together to start to show trends, areas of weakness, areas where investment might be getting diverted away that shouldn't be, that we can then go back to the FCC and these other agencies and say, okay, based on our current methodology, here's some areas that we think need to be reconsidered as to whether or not they're truly eligible and can we carve out parts of census blocks that are contested and make them eligible in places where we wouldn't be overbuilding somebody else's infrastructure with federal dollars, uh, but we would be entering a census block that is partially served. And most of the time when you have a partially served census block, it will remain partially served unless somebody else does something to change the environment. Well, this has been uh, quite in-depth, and I really appreciate all your time with it. Oh, it's my pleasure, and and I've enjoyed talking with you and and others about this problem over the years. I do think that there's been a lot of good work done on the private sector side, on the nonprofit side, on the university side, um, working with uh, Dr. Rick Bunch at UNCG on the 
radio wave propagation analysis and understanding how to deal with trees and things like that. So many different folks have put their mental energy to this, that we've come a long way. Uh, if we look back to where we were when we started all of this, um, the costs involved have come way down. Um, the ability of folks to get to this data and use it themselves has gone up. And so I think we've made progress, we'll continue to make progress, but right now the fact that those federal dollars are being spent without sufficient understanding of the true on the ground service, uh, I think is indicator enough that we need to continue to concentrate on this. Well, thank you, Brian Rathbone, co-founder of Broadband Catalyst. Um, For the listeners, you're about to hear my voice talking to somebody else. Back in a second. Welcome back to this episode three of Why North Carolina Broadband Matters series, uh, where we're exploring better broadband internet access in North Carolina, how to get there. Uh, Now we're going to be speaking with Jeff Searle, the director of Broadband Infrastructure Office, Uh, the director of the Broadband Infrastructure Office in North Carolina's Department of Information Technology. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I feel like whenever anyone has a longish title, you always have to make some kind of a joke about how it fits on the the business card. Um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're a government agency, so we use a lot of acronyms, you know. Right. Well, and what does your office actually um, do? I mean, I think, you know, we have a sense of what um, information technology generally does. But within that um, agency, what does the Broadband Infrastructure Office focus on? Well, we focus on uh, enhancing broadband deployment and adoption across the state. So uh, mostly on on policies and uh, planning, and also uh, we we operate or run certain uh, programs. For example, um, a few years ago, we published uh, Connecting North Carolina, which is a state broadband plan, uh, lays out over 80 recommendations for uh, the state government, local governments, and nonprofits, uh, government agencies on how they can improve uh, broadband, both availability and adoption. And then we also do some um, uh, grant administration. We we have a $15 million rural broadband grant program, and uh, those funds go to internet service providers that uh, will deploy in uh, in rural areas uh, across the state. So we just had our first round. It was a $10 million pilot program, if you want to call it that. And the, our general assembly uh, just reauthorized that program at $15 million a year for 10 years. So that's a big part of what we do. And then we, we have a, a technical assistance team uh, that works with counties and local governments uh, on planning. Uh, we have a community broadband playbook that uh, that we host on our website, and then these individuals um, work with uh, each of those local governments um, on a number of different uh, different things, like you know, um, citing vertical assets in the community. Um, we have a survey, so they'll uh, conduct demand aggregation um, campaigns. Uh, and so that's um, that's another big part of what the office does. We do have a public safety element. We administered the the first uh, net program, um, that, that federal program and grant, because we're a government agency. Of course, we have a vision statement, um, and that's that all North Carolinians should have access to affordable uh, broadband services. And we believe this because we have seen broadband enhance a community's viability and livelihood. Uh, by creating income opportunities, uh, facilitating greater civic and cultural participation, uh, expanding educational opportunities, uh, access to healthcare providers, and and other essential services. Um, We've seen communities uh, revitalized and changed um, when they have reliable, affordable, high-speed internet access. So as you're listing all the things that the the broadband infrastructure office does, I'm realizing it's probably quite larger than I imagine. How how many people are there working for it? Well, we have uh, ten folks. Uh, one is a as uh, a part-time Temp Solutions um, person, and then we have two individuals that work almost exclusively on the public safety side of of our office. Uh, they were the folks that were funded through the federal grant to set up and educate policymakers and the governor during the first net uh, procurement. And if you're familiar with that um, process, the, 
each governor of each state had to either opt in or opt out of that program, which is the, you know, the nationwide wireless broadband public safety network. And so they did a lot of work and data collection and so forth. They're continuing some of that work. And then we're trying to evolve that office into um, a public safety communications, technical assistance uh, team and, uh, and looking at future you know, technologies to help our, uh, our state agencies. Yeah, we have mostly ignored FirstNet um, because it seems like it's overwhelming. And uh, I don't want to yeah. uh, put you on the spot in talking any further about that. I want to <laughs> focus on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have four members of our technical assistance team. These are individuals that have decades of experience working for industry providers, broadband providers. And then we have uh, some folks that work on uh, data and research. And so I'm curious for all these different folks, how does mapping really play into how they do their jobs? And, and you know, how does your office, um, like, why do you care so much about mapping when you're trying to make sure people get the benefits of these high quality broadband networks? The primary concern is, is money and, and funding, um, both our rural broadband grant program that I just mentioned and several of the federal uh, programs that fund broadband deployment, including some of the programs out of, uh, out of the USDA and out of uh, the FCC, uh, will rely on or you know define unserved areas based on on their maps and based on data that they receive or those entities receive. Now, as you as you probably know, most of, of these programs and most of the nation looks to the FCC maps as sort of the uh, standard map for you know broadband coverage, uh, both for wireline and wireless. But a predecessor to this office had received grant funding through uh, U.S. Department of Commerce, you know, National Telecommunications and Information Administration to map the state's broadband coverage. And we did that back in 2014. But since that time, there haven't been any updates to that map and the, and the data collection at the state level stopped. Um, and that data collection was from the internet service providers themselves. So since that time, we've simply relied on the FCC maps. And, and for all the reasons that were previously discussed, uh, those maps uh, are inaccurate, you know, at best. If we're going to focus money in areas that need better broadband, then we should have um, pretty accurate data. Um, and, and we feel pretty strongly about this, especially at the state level, because these dollars are taxpayer dollars and we want to make sure that they're used to their, to their greatest benefit. The other important reason that we need accurate data and maps is, is for our technical assistance team, which does a lot of planning with communities. So we need to know where that infrastructure is uh, when looking at uh, helping those communities. What what tools do you have as a as a state? To some extent, there's a this question of well, if the Federal Communications Commission is unable to produce accurate maps, what can the state of North Carolina do? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and and uh, sometimes I, I you know I feel like we're the lightweights trying to take on the heavyweights. I think you know with the FCC. Um, data collection and, and their methodology, we, we think that could be pretty simply solved by simply having you know, the internet service providers provide more accurate data or specific data, I should say, about where they have coverage and where they have infrastructure. I think it's simply a, you know, a, a policy decision that's been made to limit the amount of information that, uh, that is collected. So what we're doing at the state level is we've, we've kind of taken it upon ourselves and encourage citizens to kind of take over and tell us um, where they don't have coverage or where they're lacking service. So we've done, in working with um, uh, the counties, mostly at the county level, we've done demand aggregation surveys and some speed testing. Uh, we have 100 counties in the state and we've done this type of initiative with 40 so far over the last four years. We also have on our website uh, a speed reporting tool, which we're, we're going to upgrade here in the next few weeks. So it's not currently available, but we're going to pair that speed testing tool with a survey so we can gather 
more specific information from folks that uh, that don't have uh, service. We use a couple of commercial mapping services. Um, those uh, services uh, allow us to locate, for example, where fiber runs are, um, lit buildings, central offices, cell towers, and so forth. So those are all key pieces of infrastructure that, that we like to, to know about. And finally, one thing that we found incredibly useful is our grant program. So when, when internet service providers, big and small, apply, we ask them to be as specific as possible about which locations they want to serve in their uh, proposed project areas. The legislation that authorized this grant fund allows us to declare portions of census blocks unserved. Well, our legislation allows us to go into into that census block and do a deeper dive, in other words. So the grant program has a mechanism um, called a protest. And if an internet service provider believes that an applicant is going to serve uh, an area that, that's already should be considered served or designated served, where they're providing service, then they can submit information to us. Now, we make them and require them to provide detailed information. In the last round or our first round of our state state program, we received approximately 15 protests. And in each of those protests, we we were able to use some, some pretty detailed data to drill down into these areas and actually look at almost every location within a particular area. That was helpful because now that gives us uh, something to build upon. You know, you've already described some of the challenges that you face, but are there other challenges you faced along the way in terms of how you're trying to collect this data and and make it useful for folks? Yes, definitely. Uh, and, And part of it is on the collection side, it would really be helpful if we could simply receive information preferably location-specific information from the internet service providers that are operating in the state. Um, There's been some pushback on that. Um, Some of that is pushback based on the administrative burdens that would cause some of these these companies. Some of it is based on the resources that we have here at the state level that might not be available to collect that data. Georgia recently went through an exercise where they were able to get some very specific data from internet service providers. Part of the reason why they were able to receive that data was because the state law protected that information from from the Public Records Act. So, so there's some that would be another challenge. You know, we, we need to make sure that the information is is protected. I mean, we we appreciate and want to respect the confidentiality of these providers, but we also feel like there's a you know there's a balance there, or could be a balance there. Um, the other uh, challenge we faced would be on uh, the data itself. You know, it's not just as simple as looking at a Google map. Um, we've all had this experience of typing in a location in our in our phone or in our Google Maps and uh, and get it under pretty accurate directions to where we want to go. But a lot of our GIS folks and uh, that that are working on these issues really rely on very detailed information and data. And so, for example, when we receive maybe an address location from someone and we go to plot it and they try to geolocate it on the map, then um, sometimes those don't translate very well. Uh, So there are some technical challenges that that we were facing. And do you feel like this is something that you know, in five years you're still going to be wrestling with, or are we working this out? Gosh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> this has been something we've been wrestling with. Uh, well, I've been here five years, and I know that you know even before I, I got here, uh, folks were wrestling with this issue. It seems like a, a, a fairly straightforward fix, and we just can't seem to get there. What I would like to get to is a place where at least we have sufficient data and information to inform these funding decisions, you know, to, to basically to direct us to where the money should go. And I think if we do that, then, then, then we'll be in a good place. And I think we can get there within the next five years. Good. Cause I'm also tired of talking about mapping. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who isn't? I know right? <laughs> you are. And yeah, as, as CAF too has sort of 
progressed and is now winding down, I think people, and specifically lawmakers and policymakers, are starting to figure out, well, wow, this this didn't turn out, you know, as successful as we thought. And part of that has to do with the data itself and what we're collecting. So now that Congress is starting to get involved and in, in to raise awareness of the issue and and is looking at, um, you know, passing legislation uh, and, and they've been holding hearings, I think that's really, uh, really moving the needle. So I, I think with that sort of attention that we'll get um, things moving uh, pretty quickly here. I'm glad to hear that. I, I, you know, I think I think so too. I think the FCC's new proposals are better. I think some of the state experiments, um, Kansas and, and Georgia, both have been thinking um, outside the box a bit in ways that I I hope we'll all learn from. Um, but I, I want to end this by with where you began it in some ways, which was to remind us that you know you're working on this issue not just so people can have broadband internet access for the sake of having broadband internet access, but so that the communities are stronger. We have better educational opportunities, economic opportunities, and things like that. So. Um, you know, I think it's, it's a reminder that it, winning the mapping discussion is sort of the first phase of a multi-phase approach to solving this problem. It really is. And, you know, as we're looking at, you know, the rural-urban divide that continues to grow and we're looking at, um, you know, the low-income and high-income divide and, and, you know, income disparities continue to grow um, there are some equalizers out there, and we feel like access to broadband is one of those. It's pretty remarkable to see the transformation of a company uh, out in rural North Carolina, and specifically uh, a small manufacturing company in in Madison County, which is far west of, in our state, very mountainous county. Um, but they were able to uh, finally connect their facility to fiber and uh and then they and, and because of that um they were able to hire a couple of more salespeople to work the phones and also to start communicating with their customers overseas uh, and to troubleshoot uh any of the problems that uh, that the tools may have been having they've transformed their business uh and become a, a global player you know, and it, and I think that says something uh, about the, the the power and the you know of high speed internet access. So so yes, we we've, we've seen it transform small businesses and and really allow for opportunities in in a lot of our rural areas. That's great, and I'm you know it's, that's what we're hoping for is that we can see economic opportunity um, spread much greater into the rural parts of our state because. People can choose to live in cities. They should choose to live in rural areas, but fundamentally, it should be they should be able to thrive wherever they want to live. That's right, exactly. Well, thank you, Jeff, for coming on and uh, spending this time with us to get us a better sense of of both why this is important for the state, but also what you're doing to deal with it and what in five years you will be able to stop doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for raising the level of awareness around the mapping issue. And I'll be happy to stop talking about it in less than five years. Thanks for tuning in to the special YNC Broadband Matters podcast series and for listening to the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Remember to follow Christopher on Twitter. His handle is at CommunityNets. And if you follow at NCHeartsGB on Twitter, you'll tap into all the NC Broadband Matters material. We want to thank Shane Silverman of SilvermanSound.com for the series music, What's the Angle? License through Creative Commons. And we want to thank you for listening. Until next time.